Hello and welcome to the Mostly Weather podcast. My name is Doug McNeil. I'm a scientist here at the Met Office. And today, joining me in our Hall of Fame recording, our Met Office scientist, Neil Robbins. Hello. And special guest, Professor Richard Betts. Hello. And today, Neil, do you want to tell us who we're inducting or we aim to induct into the Hall of Fame? So this week we're inducting a personal hero of mine, local boy, uh, who lives in the southwest down where the Met Office is based, Jim Lovelock, James Lovelock. So I first heard about James Lovelock uh, when I was doing my PhD. And in my PhD, I was studying the way that the rainforests interact with the atmosphere and the clouds in sort of climate feedbacks. And so James Lovelock's name was something that came up very soon. And he's just, he's a really inspiring guy. I think a lot of us in, in atmospheric science sort of wish that we could be a bit more like James Lovelock. You know, he's, he's a maverick, he's independent, he's controversial. He's got this sort of amazing creative way of thinking. So he's a he's a really, really interesting guy. And actually now my career has moved on to be, uh, I'm, I'm now the deputy head of the Met Office Informatics Lab. And that's a multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary group where we take sort of, you know, big picture views of problems uh, that we're trying to face with our data. And, and again, I think that's something that he really pioneered is about looking at these these really complex problems from lots of different views at the same time. So our special guest is uh, is Richard Betts. Richard, do you want to tell us how uh, you know of uh, of James Lovelock and, and and your involvement with him? Yes. So uh, Lovelock's been a personal friend for uh, over twenty five years uh, now, and closely uh, related, closely working with uh, the Met Office Hadley Centre, and he's been inspiring us in our development of our Earth system modelling for climate science. And in turn, I think we've uh, helped inspire some of his writing and some of his books on, on climate change. Uh, and there's been, been lots of uh, ideas bouncing around and lots of challenging of each other's uh, ideas and ways of thinking and so on. And, and I think, think it's been really nice to have this this very different view uh, uh, challenging us within the civil service mainstream science, if you like, uh, and helped inspire us to broaden our minds. So how how did you uh, meet him, or how did you find out about um, his hypotheses and how they related to your work? Well, I was introduced to Lovelock's uh, writings um, as a teenager. My father uh, 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 gave me a copy of the first Gaia book, uh, Gaia, A New Look at Life on Earth. Uh, and I, I read that and uh, found it quite amazing. And that in itself probably played a role in me getting into studying meteorology after my physics degree. Okay. Um, then when I was uh, at the Hadley Centre, as a climate scientist myself, um, we invited Lovelock to come and give a talk uh, to the scientists at the, at the Hadley Centre in the Met Office. Um, and he was uh, being well known. He was sort of, you know, there was a VIP lunch and, uh, and everything. And I made sure that I managed to talk to him uh, in, in, in that. And then... Um, so this would have been quite early in the this, Hadley Centre, was this it? Is in so we should, we should say what the Hadley Centre is. I was going to say that the Hadley yeah. Centre is the, is the uh, climate part of the Met Office, the climate modelling part of the Met Office. So it's really concerned with how the climate is changing over, you know, sort of century timescales. And also more recently, um, uh, sort of nearer... Uh, timescales maybe the next decade or couple of decades we're getting to but really with we're coming from a and and James and uh, James's sort of um, uh, sort of earth system processes um, and thinking has sounds like it's helped the Hadley Centre develop earth system not just meteorology but all of the systems of the earth uh, and they seem to have inspired some of the work here and vice versa. Yes that's right so he had this uh, very simple conceptual model of how uh, the uh, the theory of Gaia may work. Gaia was his what his biggest contribution, uh, arguably to to science, was the idea of that life and 
the physical environment of Earth couple together yep. uh, to keep the conditions of the Earth suitable for life. Yeah, so he's, he had these really sort of, at the time, wacky, controversial ways of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he's done loads of different things in atmospheric science, right? So one of the things he's done, like you talk, he really started describing the Earth system as an organism that's evolved in and of itself, which was a felt like a really sort of new age idea at the time, but has actually become more and more accepted with time. He's also one of the people that helped discover the ozone hole. We'll talk about that a bit. And he did that from his garden shed, basically, which I think is absolutely it's great. amazing. Um, well, maybe this is a good opportunity to sort of go back and, and, and have a look at, um, at his uh, at his life. So we should and, talk about when he was born. And so, when he was born, so, this is so astounding, I right? I don't think he would mind, me, you know, mind us saying he's been doing this a long time now, right? Mm. So he's born in 1919. So he's going to be 100 next year. So that he's really one of the venerable statesmen of atmospheric science. And in fact, we found out uh, earlier, there was a, a, a talk by Tim Lenton here at the Hadley Centre earlier, and there's going to be a big uh, conference, isn't there, for his 100th birthday. Oh, which cool. I think, so, yes. so keep an eye on that. Uh, yeah, here next to yeah. Um, so born 100 years ago uh, to a working class family. And, and I, uh, I was looking earlier and uh, he couldn't initially afford to go to uni- university. Really? Yeah, which I thought was interesting. And he, he sort of um, says he, he ascribes some of that... Um, to, um, he ascribes some of his broader thinking to not going and studying one particular thing too early. So he's quite yeah. outspoken about the pitfalls of you know traditional science and scientific institutions, isn't he? Hence the garden shed comment earlier. Yeah. Of course, he did start at the world's greatest university, the University of Manchester. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Coincidentally, oh, well, right, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so uh, he deferred his military service, um, and he was. Um, uh, uh, during the Second World War, so this he did is. research on burns in the Second World War. Yeah, didn't that he? was that was really interesting. So instead of shaving, he was told to shave rabbits so they could test um, burns level degrees of burning on on rabbits. And instead of doing that, he did it on his own, you know, his own on skin, his own, on his own skin. Shave a rabbit. Yeah, so absolutely. plus one for James Lovelock already. Uh, absolutely, but apparently, um, after deferring uh, the military service, later when he found out more about uh, what happened during the Second World War, tried to to, to pick up on on military service. Uh, and then was told that his work was too important. Yeah, really. Um, which was interesting. I uh, worked at a photography firm, so really broad education. Um, and then finally was a, a, a accepted to study chemistry, I, I, I guess, which must have been the, the real scientific training at the University of Manchester, as, yeah. as you said. Uh, under the under the, he was a student of the Nobel Prize laureate um, Alexander Todd, which I thought was interesting. So clearly, some very strong scientific training there as well. And so from there, he went on to work. I mean, I'm not quite sure about the chronology of all this stuff, but he went to work at NASA not long after that as an instrumental scientist, right? So it was the instruments. I think that's the real thing that the inventiveness, the in, uh, yeah. as an inventor and the the um, the development of these instruments, which has led to so much sort of such a broad so he, um, scientific. Oeuvre, if you like. So he was particularly um, important for the Viking missions to Mars, right? And these were the mission, the probe to try and figure out if there was life on Mars. So you know, life itself is a really big theme for Lovelock. And one of the things that he was, I guess, um, influential on with with going to Mars was looking at the chemistry of the atmosphere. This is where it comes back into atmospheric science yep. to see if that indicated anything to do with life. In fact, I quoted him in the very beginning, first page of my PhD thesis, I had a quote from Lovelock about this, which was, the only feasible explanation of the Earth's highly improbable atmosphere was that it was being manipulated on a day-to-day basis from the surface and that the manipulator was life itself. 
I think that's really, really interesting. I'm, I'm not a chemist, but this is what started to get me really interested in, in biochemistry. What he's saying there is if you look at all the planets, they're pretty dull. And you come and look at Earth and all of a sudden there's all this stuff, uh, you know, all these they're things. Out of equilibrium, right? Yeah, so the point about the Mars atmosphere is there can't really be life there because the planet is in a chemical equilibrium there's, there's nothing interesting so going the unfortunate on. thing for nasa of course was that he'd found a way of showing that there wasn't life on mars when yeah. they wanted to send a rocket there to look for life so <laughs> that wasn't really the conclusion you can see it for. from so i i guess this becomes important for studying exoplanets right mm -hmm. so yeah. so you want a cheap way to look at whether other planets even uh, around other solar systems mm -hmm. have life on them and, and then finding out whether their atmospheres are chemically stable or not is is a, is a really cheap way rather than going there the basic mm. idea is if there's not life on a planet then all the things that could have chemical reactions with each other do and then nothing ends up happening anymore because it's all happened already. it's all happened whereas okay. life is constantly reversing all these chemical reactions and pulling all these these molecules back apart again to make things that can then react again in the future so that's what you're looking for right so this is, it was at NASA that he started thinking about Gaia theory, as we talked about earlier. So Gaia is, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, G-A-I-A? -A, yeah. Nice. And this is named after, sort of inspired by Gaia's name for Mother Nature. Uh, yeah, so yeah. The, 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 the name uh, apparently came from William Golding, author of The Lord of the Flies, oh, cool. who was a neighbour of Lovelock's in the village in Dorset they used to live <laughs> in. And on one of their long walks through the, the, the lanes, uh, Lovelock would talk about this idea he'd had about life playing an important role in the, in the Earth system. And Golding said, well, you, that's such an amazing idea. You've got to have a name for it. Uh, and he suggested Gaia after the, the, Greek, the Greek goddess. Yeah, I, I think it's like, it's not the kind of name that, I guess it's fair to say a typical scientist would be brave mm. enough to come up with. That's pretty brave. Yeah, yeah. it's yes. pretty brave. Although, you know, it's important to be able to sell something, right? So it's important for people to have a a, a really good uh, mental image very quickly. And that encapsulates the mental image of... of, of um, of a planet sort of looking after its own very quickly, yes, isn't it? But, it, but it's important it's controversial that it, that as well. It, it, even though it has these connotations, it's still a, 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 a serious and now pretty well-founded idea that life does play a part in the Earth system. Yeah, so it's, it is a piece of science and it's, not a piece of... Hippie, of just branding either. Yeah. Okay, interesting. <laughs> it, was a, it was a... When did he really start first talking about the Gaia hypothesis then? So that was the late 70s uh, uh, and early 80s. I think the... Uh, so that's interesting. The, the reason... I, sorry to interrupt, but the, re the reason I bring that up is because on the way to this, you know, absolutely game-changing revolutionary theory, he mm. just sort of helped win a Nobel Prize. So, like, mm. you know, the next thing he did was actually really revolutionise this instrumental technique called gas chromatography, um, with a thing called what was it, the, electron it the electron capture, capture device? device? Yep. So this was the the crucial bit of gas chroma, gas chromatographs mm. that he invented in his garden shed that really concentrated the signal up, so you could start detecting trace gases, things that are in levels of what we call parts per trillion. So that means there's one trillionth of the air that you're measuring is this whatever you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And so chromatography, you got, people might have done this at home at primary school, right? So where you put something on blotting paper and it, it creeps along the blotting paper and different dyes come out at sort of different levels along the blotting paper. And so the idea with this instrument, the gas chromatograph, is to essentially do something a bit similar, but you're doing it with you know molecules of gas um, going through a detector column. And at different levels of volatility and functionality, different chemicals come out. So the point is that this instrument went on to be crucial in detecting CFCs. CFCs, which... Uh, so th this is brilliant from my perspective because um, for some reason, people still equate the hole in the ozone layer, which we're going to talk about in a second, 
with climate change. When you talk about carbon dioxide and, and warming of the planet due to carbon dioxide, people think it's due to CFCs in the atmosphere. Now, the really confusing thing is that they do have a warming effect. Am I right, Rich? They, yeah, the CFCs yeah. actually do have a warming effect, but it's it's negligible compared yeah. to CO2. So this this is a, this is a really, really good point to say, right, CFCs, the ozone hole, we're talking about UV light coming through um, uh, the protective blanket of ozone um, and not talking about CO2 and climate change just yet. You know, okay, so we so, will talk about climate change in a minute. But uh, but the the other interesting thing on the, the gas chromatograph uh, and all the CFCs work and everything, uh, we're lucky enough to have his Lovelock's gas chromatograph in the Met Office library oh, here, cool. in, here oh, in this oh, building. Uh, so he, he gave it to us. When, when he, he moved house a few years ago to a smaller place, he, he's his fantastic laboratory, he's got his garden shed, had to be cleared <laughs> out, of course, and he gave the gas chromatograph to the, the Met Office because uh, he worked with this organisation at that time. He had the most sensitive instrument, so when the Met Office's research aircraft was involved in this, they had to fly the research aircraft over his lab uh, oh, to calibrate, to calibrate instruments, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, so maybe we should talk about, um, yeah, so I read that he first measured CFCs in the atmosphere using this uh, ECD uh, over Ireland and then... Oh, I thought um, it was Kent, but yeah, was okay, it, the okay. UK, right? And then there was a, and then he did a, a self-funded trip which basically measured CFCs in the atmosphere over the Northern Hemisphere for the first time on the on the Shackleton, mm. on the research boat. So, I, so, so it sounds like this is some pretty early... Um, detection so we, of these of these gases and that that went on to inspire the people who then discovered the the hole in the ozone yeah so correct me if i'm i'm wrong but i think his work was he detected these cfcs and went hey that's weird there's cfcs at the, the yeah. arctic who would have thought that and then the people that noticed the ozone hole put two and two together and said well we think there's a catalytic cycle that the cfcs can help continually deplete um, ozone in the atmosphere and that's what really proved it and i actually looked at the the kind of award publication and he's cited as a as an influence oh, so, so he didn't not, win the nobel prize really, yeah, but okay. he was cited as somebody who was crucial for them to win it yeah and that was in 1995 that nobel prize okay so that's pretty recent yeah yeah, yeah it, it takes a little while for a nobel prize to work through doesn't it so yeah, yeah fair enough <laughs> okay so so uh so he's already had a, an enormous influence on on science even b- before we start to really get into the guy hypothesis mm. um so we've talked so far, we've talked about uh, his early life. Um, oh, we, we even forgot to mention the, the fact that he's got a claim of, of inventing the microwave oven. Maybe we'll oh, come yeah. back to yeah. well, so I think, that. I think te- technically he, he claims to have been the first person to use microwave radiation to heat food. And, and, and he well, never thought to turn it to turn it commercially into, a, into an actual gadget into to sell. Well, I, 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 I had <laughs> it's an idea. Or, or he perhaps just... he wasn't allowed to. I think he worked for the Medical Research Council at the time. And I think they weren't allowed to sort of commercialise that. But that says a lot about the guy, doesn't yeah. he? Oh, yeah. away. By the way, ideas that are other people's absolute yes. crowning glory. So, 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 so the story I read was that the he was using this to warm up mice. Yeah, because he he was influential in uh, in early cryogenics. cryogenics. Yeah. So that's a huge thing. Okay, so mm-hmm. another massive thing yes. that we know. Okay, so we've talked about his early life. We've talked about his 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 work during the war. Uh, we've talked about um, the fact that he got a PhD and uh, he got a training in chemistry, uh, and uh, he's gone to work in the states. Um, and developed um, some really crucial uh, uh, detectors of uh, trace elements and trace gases in the atmosphere, which went on to uh, to influence the discovery of the, the ozone hole. Uh, so now maybe we re- really ought to get to one of his, uh, well, perhaps thing, 
thing he's most known for, uh, the Gaia hypothesis initially and now Gaia theory mm -hmm. uh, uh, and all of the theories around it and really get to the meat of it. Rich, do you want to just explain again the, the sort of basic concept and then maybe we'll get into the details uh, as we go along? So the idea of, uh, of Gaia uh, is that uh, life on Earth doesn't just respond to the physical climate, like the weather and atmospheric chemistry and so on. It actually plays an active part in the climate system. So the, 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 the chemical composition of the atmosphere is how it is because it's continually being renewed uh, by the presence of life. Uh, and then life also uh, takes part in other processes like uh, drawing down CO2 from the atmosphere by uh, enhancing the weathering of rocks, for example, um, changing the concentration of uh, oxygen in the atmosphere, for example, you've got uh, uh, yeah, the exchange of CO2 and, uh, and, uh, and oxygen. And um, one of the things which regulates uh, oxygen is the presence of fire as well. So as, hot, as oxygen gets uh, too high, uh, you, uh, you can get more forest fires and so on, which then draws down the oxygen again. Uh, and the fire needs uh, vegetation, of course. Uh, so uh, there's several other processes where life and the climate system are interacting to keep conditions suitable for the presence of life. So he, he was really into this idea that things had co-evolved, wasn't he, to be mm. sort of symbiotics, a very specific word, but they'd be involved to sort of cooperate. And at the time, I think I'm right in saying this was considered pretty sort of heretical because it seemed anti-Darwinian. Mm -hmm. It seemed like um, there was some kind of guiding spiritual hand and the name Gaia, I suppose, really mm -hmm. added to that. But he really rejected that, right? He was really keen that this was... Another thing that he's really into is these things, the emergent properties. He's really into this idea of complex systems which interact in such a way that they sort of give birth to these new things. And I just think this is such a fascinating idea. And it's, it's important to... Uh... Uh, talk about his collaborators at this point as well because uh, when he was at NASA at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory he worked with Carl Sagan who's obviously a very great science communicator who was married to Lynn Margulis uh, a biologist who was quite radical radical in her thinking uh, particularly on working of symbiosis uh, and Margulis and Lovelock worked together to evolve this idea which as you say sounded kind of heretical to the kind of more traditional neo-Darwinian biologists but actually is now much more accepted and most of those ideas are now accepted as fact, I think. He's really interested uh, in really interesting talking about um, the how the thinking, how your thinking needs to go to think about emergent properties of systems and how hard it is for a lot of people. There's a really interesting story he tells about, um, I think it was James Maxwell, who, you know, is one of the great sort of scientists of uh, the Industrial Revolution, who couldn't fathom how the regulator on a steam engine so if you've ever seen steam engines with these big sort of orbs either side yeah. spinning around mm -hmm. and the idea is that centrifugal the faster it spins the further they fly out and that it slows down the the spinning and then you know it's self-regulating james maxwell couldn't understand how this thing worked mm -hmm. because there's no kind of linear progression of logic it's a it's a, an emergent property of two interacting things you know, okay. so he was he, the point is he was saying this great scientific mind even even couldn't, yeah, fathom couldn't fathom it a symbiotic kind of interconnected system. Okay, so we're talking about um, the interconnected system of the Earth. Let's talk about some of the elements of that in, uh, interconnected. You mentioned uh, system. You mentioned some of them earlier, Rich. But you're talking about um, not only the life on Earth, but the sort of non-life elements. So you're talking uh, the non-life elements would be rocks, uh, uh, the ocean, the water. 
um, the composition of the atmosphere. And then you're talking about the biosphere, aren't you? So it's, what are you talking about in the biosphere? You're talking about trees and plants, but other things too. Yeah, and particularly microbes. In fact, especially okay. microbes, uh, the kind of unsung heroes, as it were. Yeah. A lot of the work uh, in the Earth system is done by microbes. Okay, so, so this forms a, a complex network that has um, interactions and, and, and the hypothesis is that this works to improve or, or, you know, or even optimize in some of the versions of the theory, mm. uh, the environment for those organisms. So I think yes. he finally got traction because, you know, as we said, he was really struggling to get buy-in for this. He finally got traction with this idea of Daisy World. So yeah, uh, I wanted to bring Daisy World yeah. up because this this is a great thing for understanding uh, how um, not climate models work, but how the sort of process of climate modeling happens. Um, so so maybe you want to talk about Daisy World, Rich, and, and, and how it started. And yeah, started. So, the way, so the way that it, uh, it works, it was a response to uh, criticism by Richard Dawkins, actually, because Richard Dawkins, uh, being a, a very sort of uh, traditional neo-Darwinian, obviously hugely influential and important in his own work, yep. uh, but he didn't like the idea of the Gaia hypothesis because he couldn't see how uh, evolution could work at that kind of level. Yeah. Uh, so what Lovelock came up with, along with um, uh, Andrew Watson, who's now at Exeter University, uh, they came up with a very simple model called Daisy World. They imagined a world where there's only two types of life, white daisies and black daisies. Mm -hmm. uh, and they would respond to uh, uh, temperature by, by growing at a, an optimum temperature. Basically, when it's too cold, um, the black daisies would grow more because they'd absorb more heat, heat from the sun and warm their own area mm -hmm. and they warm themselves more to their optimal temperature but then when it started to get too warm the white daisies uh, they could do better because they could reflect sunlight back to space and they could start to balance things out and even though you could have the sun gradually warming and uh, it, the the fact that black daisies shifted to white daisies would keep the temperature of this planet constant by by so they're still competing and that okay. was a key thing because Dawkins couldn't see how competition uh, could lead to regulation and Lovelock and Watson showed how competition between black and white daisies could lead to this regulation. Fair, fair to say they're competing for the sort of greater good you know there'll mm. be more daisies and you know to, to take a sort of Darwinian view on it the mm. daisies genes will be propagated on further mm. by this sort of um, cooperation or, or com competitive cooperation I guess you call it. Mm. Okay, so so that that sounds like um, it sounds like a um, a story you've described there. But you can write these things down in in maths, right? You can you can take, uh, you know, I would I could simulate I could write a program that simulates the number of daisies on our planet and a warming sun, and then do the physics and work out what the temperature was, and and that's what these guys do. That's exactly what they do. Yeah. So I, I guess that to a certain extent, that's kind of what we do with a lot of our climate models and our, our, our longer term Earth system models is, is a similar process to that even though there's much more complicated and dynamics fact, going on uh, for part of our model that is exactly what we do oh, uh, that, okay, uh, we, we, do we want to know this I don't know we're getting right into the guts of this because because that that that, uh, that, that daisy world model was the inspiration for the vegetation model uh, within our Earth system model here our, 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 our model we call it Trifid yep. uh, when, it, when it models the, the moving around the, the interaction between different types of vegetation and it uses the same equations <laughs> um, cool. that Daisy World uses directly inspired by, by Lovelock from the time he came to visit us to give us our seminar. Fantastic. But, but crucially based on empirical measurements of how the vegetation actually responds, right? Yes. Yeah. We got more so we've taken this very theoretical thing and, yeah. then, and then linked it in with uh, the known processes of the carbon cycle and measurements of how photosynthesis works and so on. So we've linked these two things. So, so an example of, you know, kind of where he went from Daisy World is he went into this, this hypothetical or this 
this theoretical real world system called the the claw hypothesis, right? And I, I always forget the author's names. Charleston Lovelock, Andre, Andre and Warren. Yeah. Okay, so that's the CLAW of the claw hypothesis. Yes, four names. Yeah. So shall I take a run at the the claw hypothesis? Then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is this this is a hypothetical um, feedback system similar to this Daisy world. So the idea here is that if the world gets warmer, the ocean starts to warm up. This can um, accelerate the rate at which algae and phytoplankton grow in the oceans. This creates a gas called dimethyl sulfide. Dimethyl sulfide, dimethyl sulfide goes on to create sulfate aerosols, which seed more particles in clouds. And I think we've talked about this in previous episodes, but that changes the reflectivity of the clouds. That makes yep. the clouds whiter, which reflects more sunlight back into space, which means that the oceans heat less, which means that you get less phytoplankton growing in the oceans. So... Yes, this is the self-regulating, um, uh, yeah, homeostatic system, right? That, that is optimized for the phytoplankton. That's yes. right. It'd be interesting to hear, you know, since the claw hypothesis, how, how how has the evidence changed yeah. on that? Has that become more likely or less likely, or is it still an uncertain? Uh, uncertain hypothesis. So that process uh, again, we can include it in. We do include it in our models now, and I think it's actually relatively weak okay. uh, on the timescales that we look at uh, anyway. Uh, but it has now become yeah, an, an accepted sort of part of the cycle of the system, which we which we do include. In typical Lovelockian fashion, he also then subsequently proposed the anti-claw hypothesis, oh, which had the opposite effect. Well, maybe yes. we'll come back to that because I'd like to talk about climate change and revenge of Gaia, maybe to. Yeah, towards cool. the end of the podcast, but uh, maybe we'll get to that uh, in a second. I wanted to ask Rich a couple, a couple more things, I guess, about your work on Gaia, because I know you've done uh, some work and some writing on this, Rich. So, so um, I was looking through some articles uh, from from recently, actually, and, and uh, they, the, your name came up, and uh, sequential selection came up. So, uh, I guess this is. Um, are we thinking about the difference between a, a sort of strong Gaia theory, where where there's um, that there's a real almost um, optimizing uh, aspect to the uh, to, to the guy to to the system, you know, mm -hmm. where where it's making uh, it's making the world better or or the best it can be for life, and some some kind of weaker version of the theory where it's just you know going towards homeostasis. Or how does how does se sequential selection work? So this this is taking the uh, the uh, Dawkins concern a stage further because because yeah. uh, Lovelock and Watson answered Dawkins by saying yes, you can through competition you can get regulation, but the competition only works in a selfish way. Mm -hmm. So it's still. Dawkins selfish gene kind of thing. The black daisies are warming themselves, the white daisies are cooling themselves, and it, and it turns out like that. But actually, if you've got something like rock weathering or the claw hypothesis, the DMS production, that doesn't benefit individuals, it benefits the system as a whole. So why should that emerge? And Watson actually thought, uh, is it just lucky? He coined this phrase, lucky Gaia. Is it just chance that this, that this evolves? But actually, when you think it through, there is a reason to think why the system itself can evolve in that way. Because if you imagine... If life happened to, by bad luck, evolve some some deregulating feedbacks, which made things it would be worse, evolved out itself, it would, right? It would, it would evolve, and actually, Dawkins said that. Well, of course, things just it would just die out. But actually, in the real world, as opposed to a hypothetical daisy world, the real world has a wide range of conditions. Um, most of the planet could become uninhabitable, but you're still going to get these little refugia where life can hang on, and then you've got a chance to reset the system. And you can start again and have a whole new biosphere as it evolves, which has a new set of feedbacks which can have 
self-regulating feedback. Oh, right. Okay, and so you go through... So rather than having lots of individuals, you have lots of sort of instances. So Dawkins' concern was, well, you can't have con- con- competition between planets. Yeah. But actually, you can you have, have multiple sort of, planets. It's a kind of planet. selection like that way. Oh, but we're right, saying, okay. and Tim Lenton has worked with me on this as well, yeah. we're saying you can have selection between a sequence of planets. It's kind of like the, the etch-a-sketch end of the world. So, so if I yeah. understand correctly, you're saying that the, the sort of competition darwinian competition almost between different systems mm. uh, in your biosphere so different parts of it can you know like you say if there's an inefficient or uh, inefficient feedback then why would it why would it propagate any further right it would just sort of it die, just out, die right? out yeah kill and this sort of speaks to lovelock's idea that really the earth system's an organism itself you know it's he, I think he was quite outspoken about this not being an analogy, it being really the case, but I think it really was a bit of an analogy. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. You, you can think about the whole thing as this one big um, organism. Mm. Yeah. So, but I, I, if I could, I just, just yeah. want to mention uh, the PhD student um, that Tim Lenton have got, got at the moment, Arwen Nicholson at Exeter University, is mm. now working on this idea. So, this is another generation of scientists has so been inspired by this, being inspired. taking more right, uh, okay. into this. Yeah. And, and, and reading through it, it's clear. I, I, even people that haven't agreed with the Gaia hypothesis or the Gaia theories, uh, it seems to be uh, you know generally respected as something that's inspired a lot of great mm. work, even if people are sort of upset with them. I'm, I, I wonder if Dawkins would say the same thing. But uh, yeah, to be fair, it's a, it's, it's a theory, right? Yeah, yeah Lovelock's yeah. not not saying he's a hundred percent sure this is the case. So 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 maybe this brings us on to to uh, the. Con- controversy we were talking about with the with the last book and they uh, um so we've got this idea that perhaps the calor hypothesis we've we're setting up a system which uh, maintains itself um but is there an anti-claw hypothesis mm-hmm. something which which drives the system you know way beyond its bounds and destroys everything so uh, if you take this to, to its extreme so we should say as well that lovelock's a famous communicator of science and he wrote a series of books about the guy hypothesis for the general public so they're just fascinating reading mm-hmm. um but, you know, really, if you take this idea to its extreme, his latest book was called The Revenge of Gaia. And the idea where we're going with this is one way that Gaia, you know, Mother Nature or this interconnected system could deal with the problem of, of climate change, of anthropogenic climate change, is to expunge the human race, right? That would deal with the problem. That would definitely deal with the problem. So, you so know, what's the mechanism in, that, in, 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 the, in the book? It's the, it's, it's the uh, stratification of the ocean, is that right? Oh, for the anti-claw hypothesis? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. Is that the main one in the, in, in the book? I haven't, I read it 10 years ago and I haven't, uh, I haven't picked it up since. So yeah, I, can't uh, I, I should have read it before. What's the anti-claw well, hypothesis? Um, I'm not sure. I think it's looking online. It's, it's about stratification. So it's the, the inverse of what's happened. So so you end up um, you str- so so as the ocean warms, uh, you know the the lightest, least dense water is at the top um, because it's warmer, uh, and and you end up with uh, uh, heightened ocean stratification. So it's a nutrient cap, is it? It's a, yeah, essentially, essentially you end up with no. Um, it just sits there at the you know the the light water sits there at the top. You don't you get less ocean circulation. Uh, you get less nutrients mixed down uh, into the ocean, uh, and quite a lot of the ocean is nut- what they call nutrient limited. That means it doesn't matter how much light you have, uh, if you don't have the right nutrients, it won't grow. You know, if you don't put fertilizer on your tomatoes, they don't grow, right? Um, so in that case, you get less um, uh, DMS produced by uh, the phytoplankton, uh, and your your cl- you end up with with less bright clouds, and you end up warming. So, new- so that's a feedback me- mechanism where you warm again and again and again, and you keep warming until there's huge warming. Um, now, this I think this is one that postulated in the, in the Re- Revenge of Gaia as, as something that could cause re- effectively runaway global warming, uh, leading to some quite large effects. 
So in a new podcast feature called Neil Google Stuff Live on the podcast, I can <laughs> confirm that you're right. That is, that is the anti-claw hypothesis. Thank goodness for Google. But, but, you know, in general, I guess he's taking this, this less potentially rigorous scientific position that this is an evolved system that's evolved to, to make the whole system as optimal as it can be for all the life on the planet. And that doesn't involve us. And that's, it's, that gets rid of all, all of us. It'll be interesting to think in your thoughts on the revenge of Gaia and, and some of the, the more sort of outlandish scientific theories, if you like. Rich. Yeah, so it did come up with some uh, very extreme scenarios, which Lovelock himself has since sort of drawn back from, I think. Uh, there's a, a, a map in there which basically is suggesting that... Uh, Almost all of the Earth's surface uh, is uninhabitable, uninhabitable, except for a few places at the poles. By the like last... 2050, right? Yeah, yeah. so I, and I, th- I think he realised that he'd overstated it um, uh, in, uh, in, in that case, and I don't think he stands by that anymore. Although, although clearly climate change is still a huge issue, and I think and Lovelock would still agree with that. Um, but the important thing, he, he was sort of taking a, 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 a big-picture view, and actually that book itself... Uh, even though he overstated things, the concept of doing a big picture view of climate change and what it really means was inspired by a visit to us here at the Met Office uh, some years ago. I used to bring him in for sort of regular updates of the climate science. And one afternoon we sort of sat down in a coffee shop and just brought several colleagues down one by one to talk about different areas of work. And to give him a you know, brain dump of climate science in the Met Office, he went away and he was... Uh, not only fascinated by the science, but also somewhat intrigued by the fact that we were looking at it in a very kind of objective scientific way. And he said it was almost as if we were talking about a planet that wasn't the one we lived on. And he wanted to communicate the fact that we live on this planet and this is what this means for us. That's what inspired the the book, yeah. He's also quite outspoken in Revenge of Gaia about the sort of green movement as well and that's Mm. I think that's really interesting so he has taken some apparently quite controversial stances on things like pesticides and um, nuclear nuclear power and stuff so so for instance you know DDT is this uh, pesticide that has been held up I don't know Joni Mitchell sings about it and stuff right it's like it was a real something that the the flower children of the 60s really fought against and he said that the person who invented it was rightly awarded the nobel prize for their discovery which saved more lives than any other chemical previously discovered through killing mosquitoes that were transferring typhus and, and malaria and stuff so that's pretty controversial yeah. for somebody who's potentially the, an eco warrior the quote the quote i had was from uh, tim tim radford writing a review of the of the original gaia book and he said uh, he said that uh, uh, Jim Lovelock is a man uh, who, when he encountered a bandwagon, instinctively wants to take the wheels. <laughs> I think it's a great, uh, but I think some of that, you know, um, that bravery uh, to, to to really uh, cause a controversy and be wrong sometimes is crucial. If you want to set up as an independent scientist and, and make a success of it, you have to do that. I've got another great quote. So he's a big proponent of nuclear power. And, I, and actually, I, personally, I tend to agree with him on this one. It's a, it's a practical way to to combat anthropogenic climate change. And one of the, the quotes he said was that an outstanding advantage of nuclear um, or fossil fuels, how e- sorry, an outstanding advantage of nuclear over fossil fuel is how easy it is to deal with the waste that nuclear produces. So his point here is when you burn some coal, all the carbon dioxide disappears into the yeah, atmosphere and it's, it's a everywhere. pain to get it back. Yeah. At least you've got your nuclear waste and you can just, he actually says even further that it'd be really sensible to bury all the nuclear waste under the rainforest to stop people going there. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is actually kind of a cool idea. It's, it's pretty out there. It's but... definitely out there, but it, but uh, but it could, that would definitely work. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So James Lovelock then, uh, uh, I, I find him fascinating because of his uh, his 
clarity of ideas, his 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 way of communicating, his way of taking really complex ideas and really distilling them down and communicating those effectively. What what do you find inspiring about him, Neil? I I think it's his creativity and his lack of being sort of stayed by the status quo. I think all scientists aspire to independent thought, but it's incredibly hard to do. Um, I mean, it's really the fundamental thing that drives us, but he's really been an example to us all about how to to really be able to fight against the consensus to come up with new ideas. And I think that's why he's got, you know, two or three ideas that would be enough for a lifetime for anybody else. I think one of the important things is an example of how to do interdisciplinary science or mm. transdisciplinary science uh, and the main thing is not to be afraid to step outside the areas of your own expertise because we all have our own you know, d- degrees and specialisms and so on. And disciplinary science is very important and people have to look in depth in a specialist way. But if you're looking at the big picture and all this hugely important stuff, which is really complicated, you have to look at things which are somebody else's expertise and not worry about the fact you might be saying it a bit wrong, but work with them to get it right. And it actually takes huge humility to do that, to, to step outside of your comfort zone and, and be comfortable basically feeling stupid, feeling like you don't know what you're doing. And that's where all the really cool ideas happen in between the cracks, all in between all these different expertise. And when you do get it wrong, which we all do sometimes, then yeah, yeah, move on and yeah. you've learned. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So shall we induct him into the Hall of Fame? Certainly shall. James Lovelock, an inspiration. And happy birthday, James. Yeah, happy birthday, happy centenary. Yeah, happy centenary. Well, thanks very much for listening to the Mostly Weather podcast. I'd like to thank my guest, Neil Robinson. Thanks for having me. And Richard Betts. And I'm Doug McNeil, and thanks for listening. See you again. Bye. The Mostly Weather podcast is a Met Office production produced by Claire Nazir and directed and edited by Simon Hammett. Mostly Weather is a podcast by the UK Met Office.